scripture which I'm going to read, and they're located on the back of your bulletin. I ask you to follow along as we read them, in that we will not be doing an exposition of the verses in detail, but the context of the messages will all of the message will all be coming out of these scriptures as the message progresses and goes on. So follow with me as we begin reading in first from Genesis three, verses fifteen and verse twenty. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, that is, the seed or the offspring of the woman, and thou, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Genesis 5.29 He called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Coming now to the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then a passage from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then lastly, Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree. Now today we continue our study in the mystery of human suffering. In this section, we will put in place the last side of the outward frame of our puzzle, which we are piecing together. Once this outside frame is completed, we can begin to look at the inside pieces or issues involved. If you will look on the board to my left, in erecting the first side of the frame, we examine the doctrine of the creature's sin. And we saw there that the origin of all suffering flows out of the curse which God has placed on His creation due to the sinfulness of fallen angels and man. Now, that must be... uh, uh, 
confirmed. It must be embraced if we are to make any sense out of the Bible's solution or definition and understanding of human suffering. In the second part of the frame, we considered the character of God. And we were confronted with the problem of suffering coexisting with the existence of God. And we found that in order to stay within the framework of the biblical revelation of God, that it be understood that while God hates sin, suffering, and death, for what they do to His beautiful creative design, nevertheless, He, being all-wise, all-powerful, loving, and sovereign, is in control of all the sin and suffering which exists. That is, suffering is not out of the boundary of God's control. And many today try to remove that from the control of God as if to protect the character of God. But in reality, they separate us from a hope that if our suffering comes from the curse of God, then only God has the power to remove that curse. And if it's outside of His control, even God can't do anything about suffering. Then in the third part of the frame, we can examine the wrath of God or God's curse upon sin. And there we sought to comprehend what is the exceeding sinfulness of sin in order to see the holy justice of God's wrath in the punishment upon sin. And if we do not see that, then we will view ourselves as victims of God's providence, not deserving what we have coming to us in suffering, rather than seeing that if we got fully what we deserved, all of us would be in hell today. Now, we say that with more than just lip service. We must see the exceeding sinfulness that our sin deserves. We also learned in that message the difference between the evil of sin and the evil of sin's consequences. We looked at the time before human suffering began in the garden and the time when human suffering for God's people were end in the new heaven and the new earth. And we saw that the storyline in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a line between these two times and would be characterized by continual suffering. The Bible describes the time in which we're living as this present evil world. Do not look for a world in this present life in which you will be exempt from suffering. This is what is going to go on until the end of the story occurs out here. Now, the last side of the puzzle, which we will now discuss, is God's redemptive remedy or God's solution for sin, or perhaps better stated, God's solution for suffering. If God is going to deal with suffering and remove it, then He must first deal with sin, which brings it about. Now, up until this point in our study, we have considered suffering as God's form of punishing a finite creature 
for the refusal to submit its will to the authority of a higher will, namely God's will. Suffering reminds us that we are finite, that we're subject to death, and that is God's design to humble all of us, that we're not going to live forever in this present life. We're subject to death. And the main point that we have seen in the first three messages is that in Genesis 3 is that God has ordained suffering. You catch that? It is God which has ordained suffering. It is the result of His curse. And it is not something outside of His dominion or beyond His control. But I'm glad to be able to present a message today that that's not the whole story. Because in Genesis 3.15, as we read, it should there be noted that suffering is not strictly punitive or for reasons of punishment. Suffering is also redemptive. This verse contains the first announcement of the gospel of a coming Redeemer who would restore man to a place of confirmed sinlessness in which man would delight in submitting his finite will to the infinite will of his Creator God. This is good news that comes out of the opening chapters of Genesis as well as the bad news of the curse. And in gospel preaching, that order should always be kept in mind. That the sinner needs to hear the bad news prior to the good news. God did not come to Adam and start with, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. He came to Adam and he said, Adam, what have you done? And when Adam confessed what he had done, then rather to his amazement of being condemned like God said it would happen, to eternal death, God announced that I'm a God of mercy and out here in the future I'm going to take care of this. So he gave Adam a hope. The descendant of the woman would crush Satan's head through the means of exposing his own humanity to Satan's crushing of his feet. Both will suffer. Christ will suffer at the hands of Satan, and Satan in return will suffer at the hands of Jesus Christ. One will be given a temporal blow, and the other will be given an eternal one. Also, in this opening chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and denied access to the tree of life. The curse condemned them to death. But it would turn out that the most redemptive act of all was death. Now catch that. That the most redemptive act of all was death. The death of the ultimate human being, Jesus Christ. By taking the curse Himself, God transformed the curse into redemption, which would include not only His paying for our sin debt, 
but causing our own personal suffering, which we experience, to work out for our good in restoring us to the moral image of His Son. Your suffering as a believer, which we will get to in the coming messages, is not destructive. It is constructive. It is God reconstructing you to make you obedient to His Son and His infinite will. Also, if the first parents had been permitted to eat of the tree of life in a fallen state, they would have been confirmed forever in a state of eternal separation from God. It was an act of mercy that God put the angels with the flaming sword there to where that Adam could not look back and try to restore himself through any human agency. He was to be forced to look forward in the future to where a divine agency would come and solve the solution for sin. Also, if Adam and Eve had been permitted to bear children in that fallen state, had they eaten of the tree of life, they likewise would have been condemned to a hopeless future. So thus, God gives both Adam and Eve hope for the future. And mystery of mystery is seen in that while suffering is part of the curse that results from sin, it is also the part of the solution for sin. While Adam and Eve will die, they will not die until they have seed or children. That's a promise that God has given to them. And in due time, one of these descendants will suffer unto death in the place of ungodly sinners. Folks, this is truly good news to restore hope and comfort to the race of Adam. Adam saw that this hope was limited to his own descendants in that the fallen angels were not included in the plan. God's love for sinners would be manifested only to the world of mankind, not the world of angels. Thus we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is never spoken to a fallen angel. That is to the race of Adam. For God so loved the human race, the race of Adam, that he himself became a human being, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death in the place of guilty sinners. And whoever out of Adam's race will embrace this message, they will not be condemned but have everlasting life. That's hope. That's hope. That's encouragement for ungodly sinners such as you and I. And it is an act of faith that Adam then gives his wife the name title of Eve. Eve means life giver. This was an act of faith in that Eve was not pregnant at the time. Adam believed that God would keep his promise and deliver mankind from the curse through one of, of their descendants. And this hope 
that Adam transferred on to his offspring would continue to exist in a line of godly believers throughout the Old Testament era. It was true in Noah's day. Genesis 5.29 we read, And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Noah was given a hope. And those that he preached unto that embraced this hope were also given that hope that would yet come in the future. This hope gave comfort to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That out of Abraham's descendants, there would come one who would be make out of him a father of many nations. And that individual was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It gave comfort to David in the 16th Psalm in verses 8 through 11. David talks about the hope that comes from this one. It gave promise to all of the Old Testament prophets. As if we would take time to go to Acts chapter 24 and verses 14 and 15. And Acts 26 verses 22 and 23. In Paul's sermons there, he refers to the hope which the prophets had that one was coming who would lift the curse and solve the solution for sin and human suffering. Finally, in God's appointed time, He sent His love gift into the world. In the fullness of time, it describes it. A virgin named Mary conceived and brought forth God's incarnate Son. He was given the name of Jesus, meaning Savior or Deliverer. The infinite Creator in the person of the Son acquired the nature of a finite creature. Think about that. That will blow your mind the more you think of it. The infinite Creator who created all things and stands in need of nothing, independent of all acquires the nature of a finite creature who is so dependent that his very life consists of needing milk from his mother's breast. The infinite becomes finite and yet does not cease to be infinite. Hmm? You got that figured out? That's the mystery of the person of Christ. For a little time, he is ranked lower than the angels, that he might suffer death for all. Hebrews 2.9 Why did Christ assume human form rather than angelic form? So that he might suffer physical death. So he's ranked a little lower than the angels. But now then, today, he is ranked high above all of the angels. And as we will see in the oncoming messages, those of us who are in union with Him are heirs of Christ and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ aware that we are going to be elevated above the angels and all of the honor that is bestowed upon Him because we will be in Christ. Christ became the second Adam in order to undo the damage done by the first Adam. 
in order to recover the race of man from sin and death, he had to become a man and suffer death. And in order to restore obedience to the finite creatures of mankind, he, Christ, had to submit his will as a finite creature to the will of his heavenly Father. This is expressed in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The same truth is described in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that what? Obey Him. Wonderful truths. Stop for a moment for word studies here. The word humbled in Philippians means to make low, to submit to authority. We have a wrong understanding of what a humble person is today. We think a humble person is one who goes around with their shoulders all slumped. They speak very little, and they just allow people to run over them right and left, and they never take any defense of themselves, and that's humility. Uh, That is not what the Bible defines as humility. Again, the word humbled in the original means to make low, to submit to authority. Remember coming across a man that lived in a shack down by a riverbank. That's about all he had. And people talked about him being a humble man. He didn't need a mansion. He didn't need cars. He was just a poor, humble man. You go talk to that man, he's one of the most proudest people I've ever been around. He didn't want anybody to come around his shack that might interfere with his lifestyle. Of fishing and hunting. Don't bother me. This is my life. I want to live it the way I live it. But people considered him, he was just a humble man because he didn't have any money. He wasn't searching for riches and things like that. No, he was refusing to submit to authority. Jesus Christ, the infinite creator who gives all of the laws, becomes a finite creature and submits to the laws of the lawgiver. He humbled himself. He became obedient to higher authority. Humility is contrasted with pride and self-exaltation. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God resists the who? The proud, but He gives grace to the, the humble. See how it's contrasted here. Remember, Satan said, I will ascend. I will not serve. I will rule, but I will not go down and serve a lower creature. So because of that act of pride, he was removed from his office in which he had authority over all of creation under God himself. That office has been replaced by a man out of Adam's race named Jesus Christ. And out of that race of fallen humanity, 
there will be a people in which that is so many that we cannot number out of every kindred, tribe, and nation which will be brought into union with Christ and be given the authority to rule and reign over the affairs in the new heaven and the new earth. What a marvelous gospel that we're talking about here, how God has a solution for sin. The word obedience in Hebrews is a very interesting word. It means, now listen, to submit one's will to the authority of a higher will. Now, let's phrase it in that terminology. Jesus, though He were the Son, yet He learned to submit His will to the authority of a higher will. That's obedience. Submitting to one who is in authority. If you go to work in a factory and there's a superintendent or a foreman there, and it's your first day on the job, if you're not that foreman, you're the one who is responsible to submit to the authority of the foreman. Jesus, though He were the sinless Son of God, yet He must learn to submit His finite will as a human being to the will of His heavenly Father. That's obedience. And that's what we are predestined to partake of if we are to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And thus Jesus, the infinite, eternal God and Creator, emptied or laid aside the honor associated with His position of exaltation and acquired the finite nature of a creature in order that He might experience the duty of submitting His will to that of His Creator and Heavenly Father. As the Levitical high priest in the Old Testament had to be tested before he could be put into the office, our Lord had to undergo a lifetime process of testing before he could be placed into his office as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, unlike the first Adam, who came forth from the hand of His Creator as a fully developed, mature human being. Jesus, the second Adam, was brought into this world as an infant, infant out of His mother's womb. Do you see the difference? Adam didn't come into this world as an infant. He came into this world as a mature human being. Christ came into this world in His humanity as an infant conceived in the womb of His mother. And thus, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 53, would you turn there with me? Luke 2, verse 53. This finite humanity then had to mature. It had to develop. Luke chapter 2 and verse 53. I'll read verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. That's his parents. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
the one who knows all things and can learn nothing, now then must acquire learning and grow and develop in spirit and in body. He must develop maturity and become mature like the first Adam. Because he comes into this world not as a fully mature individual, being untested, but was tested throughout all the stages of his earthly existence. His sinless moral character had to develop into that of the perfect, mature specimen of humanity. And the mechanism which God designed to develop this character, now listen, was to expose Christ to various kinds of suffering throughout the changing stages of his life. He learned obedience to the things which he what? He suffered. Consider with me. He came into the world under a death sentence from Herod. He was wrapped in rags and laid in a manger. He became dependent upon his mother's breast for nourishment. He subjected himself unto the authority of his parents. And never once, boys and girls, did Jesus have to tell his parents he was sorry for something that he said or did. If you've ever done that to your parents and you've never been saved, that See that? Jesus never sassed or talked back to his parents. He never sinned in that stage of childhood. That's why children are sinners. Because children don't like to submit to the authority of the parents. You need a Savior just like the drunkard out here needs a Savior. Because all have sinned. Jesus learned to trade of a carpenter. He obeyed the laws of God and of man when the laws of man did not conflict with the laws of God. He passed through the stages of childhood, youth, and then adulthood, being exposed to the trials of humanity which each stage brings about, and yet he never sinned. Huh? He never once apologized for something he said or did. Can you say that? And he never did have to ask his heavenly Father for forgiveness. I remember my childhood and 
passing through childhood into teenagehood. Somebody asked me some while ago, uh, don't you wish now that you're old that you were a teenager again? I said, absolutely not. I don't want to go through that again. I honestly didn't know who I was <laughs> as a teenager, what I was supposed to be here for. I had some goals, but it was a confusing time for me, trying to deal with peer pressure. Do you remember that, some of you old-timers here? you remember the peer pressure that was put on you to try to bend this way or that way and try to figure out whether you ought to hang out with the boys or the girls or the girls and the boys and all of that issue and the hormones changing in your system uh, like ping-pong balls popping. I don't want to go through that again, honestly. Now, I'm happy that uh, we got teenagers here today, and this is a stage of life in which God has ordained for you, but I'm glad God's brought me through that. And I don't have to go through some of those decision-makings again. Will I ever get married? Or, or I wonder if anybody ever want to marry me? Or will I ever want to marry anybody? And uh, how will I handle children? And, uh, and, and all of those issues. And uh, what kind of a job am I going to have? And uh, this and that. Just decisions, decisions, decisions. Jesus went through that. That's right. He's a human being just like you and me. And that's why that we, while we want to uphold His perfect deity, we must not conceive of Him as deity only. He is able to sympathize with us in all our finiteness because He became finite. Saying again, He's fully able to sympathize with our infirmities because He has lived the life of a finite creature, submitting His will to whatever will of providence was assigned to Him by His Father. He experienced firsthand what it was like for a finite creature to live in a fallen world exposed to the evils of sin and its consequences. And incidentally, beloved, when we talk about infirmities in this sense, he's able to sympathize with our infirmities. He's not talking about our sinfulness. The word infirmities is associated with finiteness, limitations. The unlimited God became a human being and became acquainted with what it's like to have limitations placed on Still with me? This is God's way of solving human suffering is by becoming acquainted with human suffering. The prophet Isaiah had pictured the Jewish Messiah as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But it was his lowly state of suffering which led him to be rejected by his own countrymen. For they were not looking for a Messiah who was going to submit. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to rule over all, particularly the Romans. They could see no way 
that the Messiah could be exalted through humility and suffering. This is God's way of solving human sin and suffering is through suffering and humility himself. You remember, even the Apostle Peter argued against Christ's suffering when Jesus revealed his plans to go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And what did Peter say? Not so, Lord. Not you. No, no, not so, Lord. That's an oxymoron. You do not put the words not so and connect it with Lord. If the Lord says He's going to do this, you do not say not so. By doing that, you are not acknowledging His Lordship. If you acknowledge His Lordship and He says He's going to do this, then you don't say not so. I read these things in the Bible and I sometimes have a smile come over my face, but I have just a sense of satisfaction that this whole biblical revelation is dealing with men and women of like passions as Jim Gable. (laughs) We're not dealing with a bunch of perfected saints that have a super spirituality over the rest of everybody else. Abraham had his faults. Noah had his faults. Job had his faults. Elijah had his faults. Finite, limited human beings who are guilty of disobedience to God. And so when I blow it, I remember Peter blew it too. Even so, not so, Lord. And when Jesus seemingly, willingly, submitted or surrendered to the soldiers, all of the disciples forsook him and fled. Have you ever reflected on that? Why? Sheep have no confidence in a smitten shepherd. Smite the shepherd and the what? The sheep will scatter. Was it not just a few moments before this surrender on the part of Christ that Peter takes the sword and comes to the defense of Jesus? We're in this together. We'll fight. And with you on our side, we'll win. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Put the sword up. Now, what did that appear that Jesus was doing in the eyes of Peter? Would you follow a a leader who gave up in the fight? Men will not follow someone who surrenders and gives up. This is the reason why they forsook the Savior. He was smitten and he suffered. You take people today who are impressed with religious leaders and who are the ones that impress people? 
the ministers on TV who are in good health, who are driving big cars and living in mansions, but how often do they show the real saints in the rest homes? So, where's genuine Christianity at? It's seen at the cross in the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. But men won't have it that way. It appears that you're a loser. Who was the man? Got a mental block here. Ted Turner. You know, the former owner of the Braves and so forth, made the statement that, quote, Christianity is for losers, unquote. Now, why would he make that statement? Because that's the way it appears to men in the eyes of this present world. If you become a Christian, you're identifying yourself with a loser, and you'll never be highly successful in this present world. Because you've got to serve. And to be a winner, you've got to conquer. And you can't conquer through losing. You can't conquer by giving it away. You have to conquer by taking. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way Satan thinks. But, Brother Jim, it was through the sufferings of the Lamb, Revelation, that Christ would conquer and reign as the exalted Lion out of the tribe of Judah. It was a lamb that Jesus, that John turned and saw that was on the throne. Voice of a lion, but he turned, and there's a sacrificial lamb. It is through Christ's sacrificial work, His giving up of His life, that He is conquering. And when you see there at the cross in that scene, if I can visualize it, here this roaring lion, this old serpent, who is going to hit at the feet, going to destroy the Messiah. And I visualize it like this. God staked out a lamb out here in the open. Have you seen these scenes in the old black and white movies where the, when they want to capture a lion over in Africa, where they'll dig the pit and cover it up, and then they'll put the lamb and attach it to a post there in order to draw the lion out of the bushes to get the lion, get the lamb. And here comes the lion out to destroy the lamb, and he falls into the pit. He's deceived. God draws that old serpent out with all of his plans for conquering and taking over the throne of God and defeating Jesus Christ. He draws him out of his plans and to his amazement the deceiver is deceived and he's conquered by the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a marvelous concept? Reflect upon the trials which would trouble the Savior as he bore our griefs and sorrows. He felt the loneliness of his brothers and sisters who saw no beauty in him until after he rose from the dead. Can you imagine being the Son of God in human flesh and your own siblings don't know who you are? 
and grow up in your own home. As a child, Jesus felt the disregard that adults often show toward children. Compare the disciples' attitude toward little children in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Jesus suffered that. Jesus was grieved over the hardness of men's hearts toward others. He saw husbands divorcing their wives and wives committing adultery. Jesus experienced the hurt of rejection and lack of respect due to a prophet. The prophet's not without honor except where? In his own country, among people that know him. Jesus felt the pain of betrayal by a friend who placed a kiss on his cheek. Jesus was moved with compassion as he saw the illnesses and diseases which were affecting men and women. And Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Jesus felt the frustration of a Bible teacher who due to the dullness of his hearers lamented in John 14, 9, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip. He not only experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue, he grew weary from his labors and needed seasons of rest to recover his strength. The writer of Hebrews says that though he was the eternal, infinite, sinless Son of God, he in his incarnate state acquired a finite, human nature which was capable of learning something. What was Jesus learning? I'm glad you asked these questions. If you didn't ask them, I wouldn't be able to answer, be given the answers, okay? What was Jesus learning? He was learning human likeness through the things which He was He, the eternal God in the flesh, was experiencing suffering. He was learning by personal experience what it was like to live in a fallen world, exposed to all the evils flowing from the curse of God. Think of it. Think of it. Jesus as God in the Incarnation became something in which He had never been while not ceasing to be what He had always been. As the hour begins to draw near, the shadow of the cross looms upon the horizon. He's gone through childhood, teenagehood, adulthood, now the cross is on the horizon. He begins to feel the heaviness of the load of God's impending judicial wrath about to descend upon him. He would not only suffer the agonies of the physical pain of the cross, but before he would die physically, his soul would first descend into the realm of the damned. 
For he must not only suffer in body, he must undergo soul sufferings as well. For that's what the damned are going to experience. Their soul is going to be tormented and they're going to be raised from the dead and be given a body where they will suffer both pain and suffering in soul and body. Jesus, in order to be the Redeemer of men, must suffer in both areas. He must experience the suffering of an eternally damned soul, cut off from all the comforts found in the Creator or the creation. And these sufferings, which began in the Garden of Gethsemane, were so intense that the Bible says that he sweated so profusely that it was as if his veins were cut open and that he bled externally. That's pressure, folks. That's pressure. You and I have never experienced that. The agony of soul so pressed upon him in the garden that he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my what? My will, but thy will be done. What's obedience? Submitting to the authority of a higher will. Everything about the humanity of Christ longed for exemption from suffering because he was a true human being. But he submitted that to the will of his heavenly Father. And here we have the essence of a finite human being capable of death, submitting himself to the will of his heavenly Creator and heavenly Father. Now, what was Jesus doing in this act of humility and submission? What was he doing there? He was connecting with me as the covenant head of his people. In all my earthly pain and suffering, He was feeling my grief, my sorrows, my loneliness, my discouragements, my fears, my frustrations, my helplessness, my darkness when days go by and there appears to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus felt my depression when my mind cries out for relief from oppression and satanic attacks. And if you're a believer, you'll have to be honest that you are familiar with those things. But isn't it good to know somebody else is familiar about with them and can do something about it? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And Jesus' final act of submission was climaxed on the cross itself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And when He cried out, it is finished, He achieved the work of redemption. He redeemed us from the curse, being made a curse for us. He accomplished the redemption of a chosen people, a great multitude which no man can number, of all nations, kindreds, and peoples, and tongues. He became the precious chosen, proven stone, acceptable to God. Though rejected by men, He became the chief cornerstone upon which each living stone 
is joined together to make up the temple of God. And I'm looking at some of those living stones right here today. We make up the temple of God because Jesus is the foundation stone. He is the chief cornerstone. And He became that way through suffering. And though the world wants nothing to do with that type of a deliverer, it is God's way of solving sin and the suffering associated with it. This perfected maturity which Christ obtained through suffering now enables Him to bestow salvation unto all that call upon Him. And He's able to sympathize with our finiteness because He has been tested in every way like we are yet without sin. So it is through and concluded our understanding of the sufferings of Jesus that we are now enabled to understand the purpose and design in our own sufferings. If Jesus learned obedience, here's the concluding line of all of this. If Jesus learned obedience from what He suffered before He entered into glory, what a gross misunderstanding to believe that we as His people should be allowed to enter into glory without any pain or suffering along our pathway. You see, the health and wealth people have missed it entirely here. They feel that suffering is something that should never occur in the life of a dedicated, obedient Christian. How would they explain Jesus? That very message which is dominating the airways of our religious world today strikes at the heart of Isaiah's prediction of how God would solve the solution for suffering. And that is through God suffering Himself in the person of His Son. After all, our glorification shall consist, among other things, in being conformed in a state where our finite wills will delight in obeying the will of our infinite, exalted God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is now through the mechanism of our personal suffering that we are being conformed to the moral likeness and character of Jesus Christ. So as we pass through each stage of the human process of aging, we are being exposed to the trials and testings to develop in that stage and sanctify our humanity. This ought to prepare us if, our, if God's will for us, some of us, is to spend the remainder of our life in a rest home. My beloved, I urge you to understand what God's purpose in suffering is, is that if you have to end up your life in a rest home, you'll be able to see some rationale for being there. You'll learn something there. I'll learn something. Many of these trials and testings that we go through are so painful that our humanity cries out for relief and saying with Jesus, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Romans 8, verse 36 and 37, Paul says, For thy sake we are what? We are killed all the day long. Throughout our earthly life, we're exposed to suffering. 
We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What's our response? Well, I wonder why all this happened to me. No, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. He suffered in our behalf. Thank God that our temporal, lifelong trials are humbling us for an eternal state of delightful obedience to our God. And thank God, and God be praised, that through this understanding, it is, quote, given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to what? Suffer with Him. Philippians 1 and verse 29. Your faith was a gift God gave you, and your sufferings are a gift from God. They are weaning you of an excessive desire to put your tent stakes down in this present life and pointing you to a hope where there will be a permanent home, a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've now completed the four outward sides of the frame of our puzzle. Side one reveals the creature's sin. Side two, the character of God. Side three, God's wrath upon sin. And side four, God's remedy or solution for sin and suffering. Now we are ready to start putting the individual remaining pieces to enable us together to obtain an insight into the mystery of human suffering. And the Lord willing will do that next Lord's Day, as we start looking at the pieces in the Bible which give different reasons for why individuals suffer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hour that we've had to spend together, for the songs that we have been reminded of through the words of our relationship with you and your love for us and the life of our Savior, that we have a hope in the world to come that we may enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Oh, may that be reflected in our daily living, and that as we are called upon to suffer, that we may recognize that it is through these sufferings that our humanity is learning to submit itself to your will and not our will. In Christ's name, grant grace and understanding and wisdom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.